Amen. All right. Well, last week we started a new series called Coming Home. And if you don't know what that's about, it, it simply kind of gets uh, wrapped up in this statement that really kind of was the impetus for this entire series. And that is that in the Garden of Eden, perhaps you've heard this story, there was a guy named Adam and a, a gal named Eve. And in that experience and in that environment, some trouble happened. Yeah? And last week I talked about that a little bit and how we were made in the image of God, intended by God to live in community with God forever. That was the goal, to live in full peace, joy, happiness, all of it, right there in the garden with God, our Father. But as a result of some of the choices we made, what happened is they were expelled from the garden, and so they basically lived their life the rest of their days with no father and no home. Get this. No father and no home. Now, that's significant when you think about how that might have impact or bearing on us as his children. And so this entire series is all about helping us understand that we had no father and no home, but yet God had a plan. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of what Jesus was talking about is that he had a plan. And so ever since we lost our home and our father, God uh, put in place a rescue plan that intended to bring us back into fellowship with him. Because this verse says it very clearly, which is really kind of the verse of the entire series. I'll share it with you from 2 Corinthians 6, 18. Listen to this. It says, and I will be your father. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's a promise from God. That's what God was up to from the very beginning. That is what it was all about. And so whether you know it or not today, I don't know if you do. The Bible says that if you want it, you can have it. And what you can have is your father back and your home back. That you can be adopted son or daughter of God. And the, and, and the reason you know it's true is the way that that verse ends. It says, says the Lord Almighty. Now, why is that significance? Because when the Lord Almighty says something, he gets it done. You, you can trust that. You can count on that. You never have to worry about that. And that ultimately is what happened in the garden because the serpent said to the people, did God really say because what he was trying to get us to do is doubt or not trust God in what he said. And I don't know about you, but I, sometimes in my life I struggle with that. Perhaps you do as well. Because we have faith, but sometimes we struggle to trust him. Trust him that he's our source, that he's good, that he's always going to come through for us, that his promises are true, and they're yes and amen to everybody that says that they are under his care. I mean, that's that's pretty big deal. And so as we look at this series, I want you to grab hold of this idea that I am a son or daughter of God if I want to be, and that I can have a father and a home again. And then from that foundation, God begins to build me and you into a champion. Come on. Nobody wants to be a champion today. I, I just... Does anybody, you, you want to be a champion today? You good? You want to be, you guys, you good? You want to be a champions today? That's what we're trying to get to. So I need you to shake off the storm. Shake off the depression of the, of the atmosphere out there in the world and get a hold of this truth because it's going to shake your life in a way that's so good. So good. All right. So in order to do that, though, we have to recognize that that rescue plan encouraged and actually put in place a certain necessary tension. 
There was an important tension that was created by Jesus. In other words, when Jesus came into the world, he created tension. Now, I know for some of us who always want everything to be harmonious, there's a part of us like, wait a second, why the tension? Well, because Jesus had to change some things because some things in our world were messed up. And so look at this in Luke chapter 15, and that'll be our text for the remainder of our time. But in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 2, it starts here. It says, tax collectors, this is Luke speaking, he's writing this gospel. He says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Now, I don't know if you fall into that category, but I probably think you do. Often came to listen to Jesus teach. So you see the, the crowd he's, he's, he's drawing, these tax collectors and these notorious sinners. He goes on in verse 2, he said, This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. That's significant. So, so what's happening is Luke is just telling us, hey, look, you need to understand that Jesus came into the world and he did things a little different. He wasn't doing things the way that everybody at the time was doing it. As a matter of fact, Jesus created an enormous amount of tension with the religious establishment. He created all kinds of problems. Matter of fact, he clashed with the religious leaders of the day. Now, why would that be? Well, because the religious of the leaders of the day had taken on a certain mentality that wasn't based on sonship and daughtership and father. It was based on rules and regulations and the fact that if you didn't keep them, you were out. And that's the difference sometimes when we look at the Old and the New Testament. But Jesus had a different way. See, when Jesus showed up his first year of public ministry, he started to clash and everybody was kind of like interested a little bit because he was saying some new things, you know what I mean? They were just kind of like, okay, I see, I see, well, that's a little weird, that's a little weird. You know how they give you time, you know, it's the honeymoon season. They give you a little time. Jesus shows up in his public ministry, they give him a little time. But I'm telling you, the first year it was time. The second year or the third year of his public ministry before he went to the cross to die was not a time of honeymoon. It was a time of great tension. They were concerned about this fella and what he was saying. It was so radical to the establishment that he just, they just couldn't quite figure it out. And ultimately it led to Jesus being arrested, illegally tried, and then executed. That's what it led to. That's the Jesus we worship. Jesus was willing to stand up in front of all of the things and say, you know what, that's not how God is. God's different than that. Y'all got it messed up. You got it twisted. You got it backwards. And so Jesus came in and said, let me explain this to you. There was a tension. There was a clashing that was occurring between Jesus and the religious leaders. And you see it all through the Bible. Just in the Gospel of Luke, you see it when he, he, he heals a crippled man and, and, and they're like, wait a second, you can't heal people. And he says, well, if I can't heal people, I'll just forgive him. And then they were just like, what? Only God forgives people. And, you know, it, it creates this mind-blowing experience for them. Like, how dare he forgive sins? But on top of that, how dare he, he heal people? Can't believe he would do that. And they even got mad that he did it sometimes on the Sabbath. They were like, how dare you do that on God's religious day? Jesus would associate with tax collectors. There was a guy named Levi that eventually became one of his disciples. People didn't like that. You know why? Because they didn't like tax collectors. It's not much different than our day, is it? They didn't like him. There were other things, you know, his, his Sabbath practices. They got on him about his disciples eating like little pieces of grain. In the, you know, as they were walking around, they ate grain on the Sabbath. How dare they? They worked for that grain. I can't believe it. 
right? I mean, you can't do any work on the Sabbath. The idea of picking grain, you're, what's wrong with you? You, you see what's happening here? And, and, and they, they questioned his authority. They questioned whether or not he should pay taxes. They questioned the resurrection of the dead. They questioned whether or not he had washed his hands enough. Come on. I mean, can you believe this stuff? And they, they questioned whether, whether divorce, you know, his view on divorce or his identity or who he really was. They questioned whether or not Jesus was who he says he was. And matter of fact, Jesus stood, stepped up right in the middle of the temple one day and he said, all of you a bunch of robbers. Religious people don't like it when you call them robbers. They don't. They don't like you to call them dens of thieves. And so my point is, is that Jesus created all kinds of tension. Don't you see it? It was a necessary tension, though. It was a necessary tension because what he was doing is saying, look, you guys got kind of a shadow of it, but you don't have the real thing. You've got an incomplete picture of what God is about, and you have to see the complete picture, and the complete picture comes into focus when you put these Jesus goggles on, and the Jesus goggles helps you see what God is doing. That's what you got to see. And so God was doing something significant, but yet there was this clash between them because, see, there was an irreconcilable difference between the gospel Christianity and religious morality. You get this. There was a major difference between this religious mentality and the gospel Christianity that Jesus was talking about. And that's why it gets so radical. Because people are like, what are you talking about? You mean if you, if you don't keep all the rules, you, you can still get in? Wait a second, that seems off to me. That doesn't seem right. You know, you know what I'm talking about. It's like when you hear about that person that gives their life to Jesus on their deathbed. Some of you are like, that's not fair. You know you had the thought. Some of you have had that thought. I've had that thought. I'm like, they don't even deserve to be in. It's not about what I deserve, is it? Because last time I checked, the only thing I deserve is hell. And yet, God says you can have more. You can have me. Sometimes we want heaven more than we want the Father. You can have me. You can have me as your father. You can have me as your home. I can radically change everything if you just simply come to me. Now, I've got many things to say about this passage, and I'm going to do my best to get through it as best I can. And so, but I need you to stay with me, okay? I'm going to teach you some things today that may you've never heard before, but, but I think it's important that you hear some context to what Jesus is doing. And so in Luke chapter 15, he starts off by talking about these tax collectors, these religious leaders, and how there's this tension that's being created, right? And so he starts there. But then as a result of that, he starts to tell these stories. And maybe you've heard these stories. It's about a lost sheep, and it's about a lost coin, and it's about a lost son. And, 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 and those are amazing stories. And they're all there to illustrate a particular point. God has a plan and a purpose, and he's telling us these stories for a reason. And here's the problem, though, I think that happens, is sometimes we think that these stories are about us, really. But they're really not about us, even though we're in the story. And we're a part of the story. And, you know, we're a character in the story. But we are not the main part of the story, the main part of the story is something completely different. It's not about the sheep or the coin or, or even the lost son. It's about something more. It's about this God who calls himself Father, who is doing something that's different than everybody even expected or thought or imagined. 
It's something different. And so, so this word prodigal, you ever heard this word, the prodigal son? You've maybe heard that in our world. That word comes and it gets attached to the prodigal son. And, and what we think is, well, yeah, because he, he, he was just messed up and he, he sinned extravagantly. I mean, he left God and I mean, it just, wow, this guy was messed up, you know, because normally we don't put ourselves as the prodigal. Now, some of us do. We're like, yeah, I've been there. But then some of us are like, well, I'm not quite that bad. You know, I'm not quite that bad. So I wouldn't really, I'm not really a prodigal son. I'm kind of like, you know, average sinner son. You know what I'm getting at? I mean, we wouldn't quite go that far. But here's the thing about that word prodigal that I think we have to flip upside down to see. See, the word, the definition itself, prodigal means, number one, recklessly extravagant. Come on. Number two, having spent everything. And we attach it to the little boy. We attach it to the son. And the Bible's trying to get you to see that this isn't about the son. Sure, the son screwed up, but this is about a God who is a prodigal God. This is a prodigal God who is recklessly extravagant, willing to spend everything to get his sons and his daughters back home. That's what the entire story is about. And so we serve a prodigal God who is willing to go to the ends of the earth to be reckless with his love, to be extravagant with his grace and go after the, 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 the very creation, the very creation that he made, the sons and the daughters of this world. That's what we've got to see as we start to break into this story. Because the story, sure, it's about the son and it's about the older brother and it's about a lot of things, but we can't forget that this is about a prodigal God who was willing to do everything it took, everything it took, even sending his only son, to get us home. Guys, I don't know about you, but that, my friends, is good news. That, that is good news. And so he goes on to illustrate this. He goes on to illustrate that with the, with, the, with the sheep and with the coin, but he also goes and talks about these two brothers. And perhaps you've heard this story, but I want to read it to you so you know about it. And so, Because I believe 100% that what Jesus is trying to teach us is that this is the only way to get home. This is the only way to get home. It's not through anything you do. It's only through what God has done for you. It's only through what the Father has done through, for you through His Son. And listen to this. We'll start with the younger brother in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. It'll be on the screens, but watch this. So Jesus says, to illustrate the point further, right? Because He's already talked about the sheep. He's already talked about the coins. He's like, if you haven't got it by now, I need to help you. So he goes on a step further and he says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told him this story. He said, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. In essence, what he was saying is, I wish you would die, daddy. Not cool. Not cool. In any age, I'm guessing. He goes on, he says to, so, so his father agreed, which blows my mind that the father would agree to this. So the father agrees to divide his wealth between his sons. Now I just say this, as I read through this, notice how the father acts. Because so often we only look at the son. He gave him his inheritance. That's the first thing that should strike us. Like what in the world is he doing? There ain't no way I'm giving this ingrate anything. You get out of my house, you dirty rat. Right? I mean, isn't that what you would think? None of you are like, oh, sure, I'll just cash out for you. That'll be great. 
So he, so he gives them this. And, and, and the Lord brought me this. I thought it was so powerful. Is, is our inheritance is given, not taken. And I've found that sometimes we try and take things from God. It's like, wait a second. No, no, no. God is a giver. You don't have to take things from God. If you're a son or daughter, you have inherited the rights of a son or daughter. You don't have to take anything. He just gives it to you freely. And then he goes on in verse 13. He says, a new day, a few days later, this young man or this young son packed all of his belongings and he moved to a distant land. And it was there that he wasted all of his money living wildly, right? About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. Isn't it true, though? That's how life is. I mean, you can think it's a party. And then all of a sudden a famine shows up and you don't know what to do. And that's what happens sometimes when we live at the margins, when we live at the edge. Is when the famine hits, we need help, don't we? We have to call somebody because we're living at the extremes. It's important we see that because I think that's what happens to anybody that runs away in rebellion to God. And then verse 15, he said, he persuaded the local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. This guy is a Jew and he's working with pigs. See the problem? It's gotten worse. The young man began so, became so hungry that he even started to eat the pods that the pigs eat. Ugh. Have you ever smelled pig slop? My friends, that is not nice. But then it says no one would give him anything. They wouldn't even give him the slop. And then watch this in verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, man, at home, even these hired servants had food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. And then watch this in verse 18. He says, I'll go home to my father and say, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I will, I am no longer worthy, no longer worthy to be called your son. And he says, please take me as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was, look at this, look at what the father does. While he was a long way off, look at this. His father saw him coming. It says he was filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. He embraced him. He kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just, just put me out there in the field and I'll work, right? He's like, I'll just do that. And then verse 22, he says, but, but his father said to him, he said, quick, bring that fine robe, establishing him back. You don't get a robe if you're a slave. He gives him a robe. Puts a ring on his finger. Come on, Beyonce. <laughs> I was just seeing if y'all were listening. Puts a ring on his finger, puts sandals on his feet. Guys, he's restoring him. He's restoring him. He's not treating him like some ingrate son that took everything. He's restoring him as a son. And then in verse 23, it says, and he, he said, kill that calf. It's been fat and we're going to eat. We're going to celebrate. We're going to feast for my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. So let this party begin. That's what the father says. So when I talk about the prodigal God, when I talk about the God that was willing to go to the ends, who was extravagant, 
who was willing to pay it all to get his sons and daughters home, this is the picture you've got to see. When you sin, when you walk away from God, when you rebel, when you put on a religious spirit, when you do all the things to kind of make yourself look good to God, you just have to see that none of that stuff impresses him. The only thing he needs to see is whether or not you're willing to put your hand in his hand and say, you know what, I'm your son. I'm your daughter. You're my father. You see what's happening here. And that's what he's trying to get us to see because see, rebellion keeps us from coming home. That's what was happening with the son. He was struggling. He was sitting in the pig slop. He's like, I don't know if I should come home because I just, I've messed it up too bad. Come on. I don't know if I should come home because I've messed it up too bad. You ever had that thought? I don't even know if I should pray to God for forgiveness because he's so tired of forgiving me because I keep doing it. You ever had that thought? Why even try? Why even go back to him? I mean, you know, and then you start parsing the difference between forgiveness and repentance. And it's like, well, I don't know if I ever really truly repented, you know. And, and so we get into this whole thing that, that the enemy is trying to keep us in this rebellious state so that we'll never be able to come home. And God wants you to come home. And the picture of this is the son rebelled against God and it kept him from his father and it kept him from his home. But God ran to him. God ran to him. And in that, he received him back. But see, the orphan mindset, when we believe we don't have a father in a home, the orphan mindset comes upon us and we start to believe things about God that aren't even true. We do. See, the orphan heart has a willing disposition that sets itself up against the father's love. It sets, you set yourself up. What you do is you take control over your own life. Come on. How many of us have done that and been disappointed? Because you can't control it. The thing you think you can control, it never works out that way. It always has, it always throws you a curveball. And you're like, oh, I didn't see that one. And now the control I thought was just a fantasy. Because see, we need a God that can deal with those things. And so we try to take control of our own life. The orphan spirit will also lead us away from home, just like it did the younger brother. The orphan heart for, uh, calls us to forget that our father is a good father. He's, he's a good father. And he loves you. You're loved by him. He's good and you're loved. Let me say it again. He's good and you're loved. Do you get that? Now, I don't know about you, but that should take just, we should take just a 30 second praise break for that because I feel like you're not getting it. That he's good, he's good, and that you're loved. And see, what happens is no gratitude. We have no gratitude for what he's done for us. We live with, uh, uh, that kind of ingratitude towards God. We want, oh, this is bad. We want the Father's things, but we don't want the Father. We want everything He wants to give us, but we really just don't want His embrace. Because when we experience His embrace, it wrecks us. You can't hide anymore when you experience the love of the Father. The embrace of the Father, it just wrecks us. And some of us are such control freaks or so freaked out or we live in such dark places that sometimes we, we just believe if that came to light, no one would love us. And I just need you to know that God loves you. He's not surprised by what you do. He's not surprised at all. He's not surprised. He loves you. And just like the sun, you may be living in a pig pen right now, but you can get up. You can come to your senses and you can begin to walk home. But you've got to reject the rebellion that's in your heart. Because see, the father who could kill you chooses to love you. The father who could destroy you with his mind. <laughs> like he could blow you up, I'm sure, with his mind. 
But he chooses not to. He chooses to love you. He chooses to show you compassion. He chooses to embrace you, kiss you, restore you. Do you see the picture? That's what God is all about. That's what this radical, prodigal God is all about. But no, some of you are like, well, I don't relate to that younger son because that's never been my story. But maybe you relate to the elder brother. Here's the elder brother. I want to share him with you real quick. Luke 15, 25 through 32. Mean, excuse me. Meanwhile, the younger, the older son was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of his servants, what's going on? What kind of party's happening? He says, your brother's back. And you would think he'd be like, awesome. Mm-mm. That's not what happened, guys. He was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. Look at that. The father's example. He came out and begged this elder brother who was acting like a selfish little rat. But he replied, all these years, father, (laughs) I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all that time, you, you never even gave me a goat to feast with my friends. Do you feel it? I'm trying to act this out for you. You feel it? It's just crazy. He says, yet when the son... When your son comes back, you squandered, he squandered everything, the money, the possessions. He did it on prostitutes. You, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son. No, let me go back. I'm going to change the voice. Look, dear son. <laughs> you, you have always stayed by me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate, man. It was a happy day. Your brother was dead and, and he was, he's come back to life. He was lost and now he's found. And you see this father that's like trying to get his son, who's always been there, to respond in a way that the father would respond or is responding. But the elder brother can't see it. Because see, what happens is religion keeps us from experiencing the Father. Get this. Rebellion keeps us from coming home. But religion keeps us from really experiencing the Father and what the Father has for us. And you may say, well, how does it do that? Well, because what happens is we behave like slaves and not sons. Did you notice he spent all of his time in the field? Sometimes we spend all of the time in the field and we don't spend any time with the Father. We spend all of our time working for the Lord, but we don't spend any time in the Father's embrace. And we wonder why we end up feeling dry, disappointed, and feel like slaves. Well, because we're acting like slaves. 
We're not acting like sons and daughters of God. We're not crawling up into the lap of a father who loves us on a regular basis because we can. We're simply out there in the field working for God. And and what happens is when we work for God, there's something that comes on us that relates to the past. There's something that comes on us from that no father, no home kind of stuff. And we take on an orphan mentality. And so we often spend time out there in the field not remembering that we can spend time in God's presence, that we can be with him. See, see, what happens is we act like uh, that we don't have a home and that we're not heirs. By following all the rules, we secure a place in the home. Get this. If we follow all the rules, somehow we'll get to, we'll get to be, we'll be accepted into the home. And you know how twisted that is. Because that's not how God talks about it. See, see uh, we get angry with the Father's extravagant love, mercy, and generosity. Like when someone like comes in the church and they've been a punk for a really long time and someone's like giving them mercy, there's a part of us sometimes, elder brothers, you know what I'm talking about, elder sisters, sometimes what happens, you're like, well, they don't deserve it. They've been, do you know what they did? Have you seen their Facebook page? That's what happens. That's what's happening to the older brother as it relates to the younger brother. He's like, are you kidding me? He is so messed up. How can you let him back in? And that's what happens. We get angry with the father. We refuse to celebrate because of our own jealousy and envy. The only way to beat jealousy in our lives is to celebrate the other person. If you're jealous or envious right now, just celebrate them. Clap them up. Say praise God for what God has done in your life. Rather than be like, I can't believe God did that because they're dirty rats. See, we want fairness or justice unless it's our mistake. Then we want grace. See, there's an orphan mentality of the elder brother that's so important we see. Legalistic striving leads to our acceptance. I can always find someone else who's worse off than I am. Huh? I can always find someone else that's worse off because then I can just say, you know what, I'm more righteous than them. I mean, at least I go to church. (laughs) Are you guys with me? Because, I mean, the rebellion, the rebellion keeps us from coming home, but the religion actually keeps us, we're in the home because we have to be, because, you know, we have to be there. But as we're there, we're not experiencing the Father's love anymore. We're simply trying to work our way to get God to love us more. And that is all, both of those, the older brother and the younger brother, both of their approaches are wrong. Both of their approaches lead to them being lost. The elder brother was lost, even though he was still in the father's house. And so the prodigal God shows us. He comes and he says, hey, I want to invite you. He goes to him, invites him and says, come to the celebration. But he can't celebrate his younger brother. The elder brother's like, no, I can't. You didn't even give me a goat. And you gave him a fatty calf. Do you think that statement's true? Think about that for a second. He's with the father in his house. You really believe the father, this extravagant father, never at any point gave the boy a goat to eat? Think about that. So now he's just saying stories, you know. And he walks away. He can't see that the father is loving, gracious, merciful. He can't receive it. He rejects it. He's unable to enter in because of his religious mindset. 
because of this orphan thinking. And I want to read this quote to you from Timothy Keller that is so powerful. Just listen to this. There are a lot of people, and there are a lot of Christians with the elder brother type heart. If in your heart of hearts you say, I try hard, I try to be obedient, I go to church, I pray, I try to serve Jesus, watch this. Therefore, God owes me to answer my prayers, to give me a relatively good life, and to take me to heaven when I die. If that is the language of our heart, then Jesus is your model, Jesus is your example, Jesus is your boss, but he is not your savior. Let me say that again. Jesus is your model, Jesus is your example, Jesus is your boss, but he is not your savior. You are seeking to be your own savior, all of your morality and all of your religion, it's just a way to get God to give you the things you want and they are not God himself. And all of my religious sons were like, oh. But see, there's a third son in this story. There's a third son in this story but he's telling the story. You see it? There's a son telling the story that sometimes we lose sight of. And the son that's telling the story is the son that actually can help us with our problem. And so Jesus, the son, tells this story to help us see how his father really is. First hand, my friends. This isn't coming from third person. This is coming firsthand, son speaking about his father so that we see who this God really is. And so what happens is we have to see that rebellion isn't going to do it, religion isn't going to do it, but the relationship with Jesus is what's going to do it. See, relationship allows us to continually... This may be the longest point I've ever written in my life. You ready for it? This is the longest point I probably have ever written in my life. You're not going to be able to write it down, but here it is. Relationship allows us to continually receive the love of our Father who provides a home for us that is safe and secure where I can feel loved, accepted, protected, affirmed, nurtured, and disciplined. Some of you are like, wait, he ended on disciplined. (laughs) That's a big, look at that thing. That is like the biggest thing I've ever given somebody. Wow. But do you see what the relationship does? Secure. Come on. Don't we need that in our lives? Secure place, safe place that I can be loved, accepted, protected, affirmed, nurtured, and even disciplined because God says he disciplines those that he loves. It's powerful. And it's through the relationship. It's through this son that isn't in the story, but telling the story that I now can have access because see Luke 15 says it this way, 31C if you notice and it says the father is saying to the, the elder brother and everything I have is yours. You don't have to, you don't have to sit there on your knees and, and beg me like some little beggar. You're a son. You get up and you walk your way into this house because I love you. And everything I have is yours. It's given to you freely simply because of my son. Guys, holy moly. If that doesn't excite you, if you don't want that, I don't know what to do with you. I mean it. If you're, I mean, if you're that place, that's tough to see because that is what it's all about. Is everything we have, 
Everything that is, that is God's is yours. And so I want to end this way and we'll be done. In Luke, or I'm, I'm sorry, in, in, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, listen to this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me. And then it says, and lead me in the way of everlasting. So just for a moment, just ask the Lord to search you. Just close your eyes for a second. Just close your eyes for a second. God, would you search us now? Search our hearts. And if you want that, if you want that, just, just say that to him. Just say it. Say, search me, God. Would you reveal anything in me that's rebellious? Any area of my life that I'm running? Just reveal it to me, Lord. You're gentle. You're kind. Your, Bible, your word says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, Lord, would you show us anything? God, is there any way I'm allowing religion to be my foundation? Will you show me where I'm acting like the elder brother? Where I'm always wanting to be thanked for the things I do? Will you show me? God, each one of us in this room need a relationship with you. Without a shadow of a doubt, that's what we need. And so, Father, we ask that you'd search our hearts, that we might be real, transparent, vulnerable, before a safe and secure Father. And we ask that your Son would come in. We ask that your Son would come in and begin to do the work that he does. Your word tells us that if we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is who he says he is. That you would come in and that you would save us. And so, God, I pray right now for anybody in the room that's never settled that matter, that they would have an opportunity to do that now. But just simply say to the Lord, Lord, I need you. I'm sorry for the times I've rebelled, or the times that I've thought my religion was going to get me there, I just ask for your forgiveness. And I just believe in my heart today, Lord. I put my faith, my trust in you, that you are changing me from the inside out, that you are working in my life in a new and fresh way. And if that's you, just say, Lord, I want it. I need it. I receive you. I receive your grace. I receive your mercy. I receive your love. I receive your care. I receive you as my father today because I need a home and I need a father in order for me to be the champion that you want me to be. I believe these things in Jesus' name.